Over 2,600 years ago, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus famously proclaimed, everything flows. And while some of that change can be identified as good, other change can be identified as bad. Perhaps this morning or this afternoon, you are experiencing a, a difficult change in your life. This difficult change in our lives can leave us with several questions. If we are honest with ourselves in those times of painful change in our lives, questions arise, whether we ask them of ourselves or whether others ask them of us. Questions like, has God changed toward me? Do I, his child, have security and safety even if I don't feel it right now? Has God's love departed from me? Has God broken covenant with me? See, the main point of our text in Isaiah 54.10 is this call to trust in the Lord though your circumstances change because his love for you and his covenant with you will never, ever change. We're going to look at that first part of verse 10. Notice, the Lord says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. I want you to notice the imagery and the circumstances here. First, the imagery of the mountains. The mountains departing, the hills being removed, seem to suggest the mutability or change of creation. And the language of departing and removing, they don't picture an easy change. What some may think is an easy change or a good change, but rather a tremendous change. Ritterboss comments, he says, Mountains and hills tend to be the most stable features in the whole of creation. Imagine that. You look at the hills that once brought you safety, and they're being removed from the earth. Or you're looking upon the mountains that once brought security to your life and they're being rent apart. What would you do? You would probably run away as far as you can. But here the Lord reminds us that the nation of Israel is experiencing a, a difficult change they had experienced in their circumstances. Think with me for a moment about their circumstances. If we look at the context here, we see that the Israel's circumstances had changed because while once living in the land and happy in spirit, they were now in exile. And while in exile, Israel felt deserted by the Lord. They were grieved in spirit. Look at Isaiah 54, verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. In their particular circumstance, Israel was being deserted by the Lord for a time due to her sin. And they felt abandoned by God due to their sin. Look at Isaiah 50, verse 1. In Isaiah 50, verse 1, we read, Thus says the Lord, where is your certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgression your mother was sent away. Now the question is, had the Lord divorced Israel? Had the Lord sold her to pay a debt? And the answer is no. As one commentator wrote, the explanation of Zion's destruction is the sins and transgression of its people. Not any cooling affection 
or straightened circumstances on God's part. While God had not changed, Israel had changed. And because of Israel's sin, their circumstances had changed. What we are reminded of here is that there will be change in our lives that bring heartache. Israel was in pain. There will be changes in our lives that seem too heavy to bear. Israel was experiencing being grieved in spirit. Now, sometimes these changes are not due to any particular sin we have committed. Sometimes we just undergo difficult changes in our lives, and due to the weight of our circumstances, the grief of our hearts, our tears blind us from seeing the glory and the mercy of God. Sometimes we may feel like the psalmist in Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, who says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? On the other hand, some of these changes in our lives are due to sin and the discipline of the Lord. It's during these times that we may feel deserted by God. In our confession of faith in chapter 1, paragraph 5, it reads, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, they have not usually the light of his countenance, that sense of his favor restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. So there are times we would do well to heed the words of the Apostle John, those familiar words, but those glorious words in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Where are you this afternoon? Is your spirit grieving due to the weight of trial, the weight of challenge? Or do you feel the Lord has casted you off? Do you feel deserted by God? The call this afternoon is to trust in the Lord, though your circumstances change. Because whether your circumstances have changed due to the challenges you are now facing, or even the sin you are struggling to confess and turn away from. Nevertheless, while these changes occur, they do not suggest any change in God or any change in his love, any change in his covenant with his people. As Walter Smith's hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise says, we blossom and flourish as leaves on a tree and wither and perish, but not Nothing changeth thee. So trust in the Lord, though your circumstances change, because his love for you and his covenant with you will never, ever change. Look at the second half of verse 10. Isaiah 54, verse 10, the Lord declares, But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. 
I want you to note two things, God's steadfast love and God's covenant of peace. While these two descriptions go hand in hand, we should understand that God's steadfast love is the blessing of his covenant of peace and that his covenant of peace promises his steadfast love. Well, first, the promise of the Lord's steadfast love. We need to keep this imagery in mind here. Though mountains, those symbols of security may depart from you, those circumstances which brought a sense of security may be removed from you, what the Lord is saying here is that his steadfast love, which is absolutely distinct from creation, will never, ever depart from his people. You see, God always loves his people because of who he is. God is love itself. He is in and of himself an infinite source. Since there is no reduction and there is no diminution in God himself, he is an infinite source of love. You see, God's love is not an emotion. God's love is a perfection What are emotions in us, it has been said, are perfections in God. And since God's love is who he is, there is nothing that moves him away from something bad or moves him towards something good. You see, since nothing affects him, God cannot cease to be love. This is what God's steadfast love means. God cannot cease to love his people. He cannot cease to love you because his love is without change, passion, Or limitation. This means that God's love for his people is immutable, impassable, and perfect. As Dr. Samuel Renahan has written, negate, that is, take away the passion of loving God, and you will find the perfection of loving God. Edward Leahy once said, The attributes of God are everlasting, constant, unchangeable, forever in him at one time as another. This may minister comfort to God's people. God's attributes are not mutable accidents, but his very essence, his love and mercy are like himself, infinite, immutable, and eternal. You see, God is not like us made up of parts. He is simple. He is who he is, and his love itself, his love is unchangeable. In Psalm 102, 26 to 27, the psalmist cries, they, referring to the heavens and the earth, will perish, but you, see the contrast, you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. You see, God, our creator, is not like us fickle and finite creatures. Thomas Aquinas wrote, since God is infinite, comprehending in himself all the plenitude of the perfection of all being, he cannot acquire anything new. Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote, immutability is the glory that belongs to all the attributes of God because it is the center wherein they all unite. He who hath no being from another cannot but be always, always what he is. Herman Bovink wrote, those who predicate any change whatsoever to God, whether respect to his essence, knowledge, or will, diminish all his attributes 
robs God of his divine nature and religion of its firm foundation and assured comfort. So think about it. God is saying to his people in Isaiah 54, verse 10, your sources of security may depart, the mountains may depart, the hills be removed, but this is your comfort. My love will never depart from you. Why? Because I am who I am and I love you. You see, God in himself cannot depart because as it has been said, God in himself is not made up of parts. And since God is not made up of parts, his love for you, his people, can never fall apart. God's steadfast love will never fall apart or depart from his people. Now we have to ask, what about our sins and his justice? God is love, but God is also just. And so this leads us to the promise of the Lord's covenant of peace. Look at Isaiah 54, verse 10 again. We see there that coupled with the promise of his steadfast love is the promise of his covenant of peace. God's covenant of peace, he says, shall not be removed. Again, we are reminded here that though hills, which are symbols of safety, may be removed, God's covenant of peace will never be removed. Creation may give way, but God's salvation remains. And as is declared in chapter 54, his salvation, hope you notice that, his salvation expands. So I wanted to give us a sense of the whole chapter. And why does it expand? Because God's love remains the same and his word is faithful. Consider the immediate context. Just scroll through those verses there. God's word of promise, notice God's word of promise in the Abrahamic covenant is alluded to in Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 4. And his word of promise given in the Sinai covenant, which is alluded to in Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 8. And his word of promise in the Noahic covenant, which was referred to in Isaiah 54, 9 through 17. And it's all foreshadowing. It's all pointing ahead to the suffering servant. The suffering servant is that skull-crushing seed of the woman who brings a salvation that remains, a salvation that extends to all his people. Consider the broader context of this statement here. After the Lord's announcement of his suffering servant in Isaiah 53, which is described in his character and his work, the Lord turns to his people and assures them of the fruit of the servant's work. That's what we see here in Isaiah 54, the fruit. So as we have the faithfulness of the servant's work being described in Isaiah 53, and then here in Isaiah 54, we have the fruitfulness being declared. And who is the servant? The servant is Christ. And Christ's ministry was declared a ministry of peace. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We see here that Christ's ministry brought peace by taking the place of his people. Christ's ministry brought peace by bearing the penalty for the sin of his people. In Isaiah 54, verse 10, 
Lord is assuring his people then. He's assuring the church that Christ's suffering and death will establish a covenant of peace. While this covenant of peace had a partial fulfillment in a renewed covenant after Israel's exile, as we see in Ezekiel 34, verses 25 to 31, nonetheless, this renewed covenant is, notice, an eternal covenant. In Isaiah 55, verse 3, the Lord reminds his people that the Davidic covenant is fulfilled by this eternal covenant of peace. He says there, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. You see, this eternal covenant of peace has its ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant. As John Trapp called it, this is the hive of heavenly honey. Turn to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31. Listen to these glorious words. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I think it's both John, John Gill and uh, Matthew Henry that emphasize that this covenant, this new covenant, is not built on any kind of merit on our part. But it's solely built on God's mercy. Now, how would the life of this new covenant begin, though? The life would begin by death. Christ, that, that Prince of Peace, formally established this new covenant by his death. You see, because of our sin, our disobedience to God's commandments, by nature we do not have peace with God. We are at enmity with God. We are guilty. We are corrupt. We deserve the just judgment of God. And all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were pictures pointing to that sacrificial death in Christ. This peace with God then can only be brought about by perfect obedience to the law. And this is what Christ fulfilled in his death. He perfectly kept that moral law of God in both precept and penalty. He purchased this peace between God and man by paying the penalty through his death. And so the new covenant is that covenant of peace, that eternal covenant, because it's not the blood of bulls and goats that would be shed, but the precious shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the promise here is that all who trust in Christ alone, both Jew and Gentile, have peace with God. I remind you of Romans 5 we just read. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a covenant of peace because in it we see God's steadfast love. Romans 5, verses 7 through 8, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This promise here of steadfast love and the covenant of peace is really summed up. I hope you see it in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ comes, the one and only mediator between God and men, and he brings a better covenant. He establishes a better covenant with better promises. And so my friends, I, you have to understand the majority in Israel, they didn't listen to this word. Many of them perished in their sins. The situation in our text is that Israel's circumstances had changed due to their sin. But against that black velvet backdrop, we can see the brightness of God's love, an unchangeable love and covenant. Like Israel, your circumstances will change in this world. Those things you once looked for, stability, safety, they're all subject to change. And much of that change will be hard. Much of that change will be painful. And sometimes that change will be due to our sin. And when that is the case, there needs to be repentance, a turning from our sin to Christ. But that doesn't mean God changed. God's love for you, his covenant with you will never change because he never changes. The Lord loves his people with an immutable, impassable, and perfect love and has given his people, all who trust in Christ alone, a covenant of peace that will never, ever change. And all this is because of Christ. My brothers and sisters, behold God's compassion for you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon exhorts, what more can he say to you than he hath said? That what sure pledge can he give? Oh, rest, 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 sweetly rest on this sure word of covenant love. Then let the mountains move. He told you they would. Then let the hills of your comfort sink. He told you they would. But even then, when the earth itself doth reel and the very pillars of the universe are snapped, he standeth still the same. I have sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. Trust in the Lord, though your circumstances change, because his love for you and his covenant with you will never, ever change. I want us to conclude by meditating on a couple of applications. First, God's unchangeable love is the foundation of your faith and hope. As Benedict Pictet wrote, this immutability of God is the foundation of our faith and hope. Though circumstances change, though people in our lives change, we change, our health changes, family and friends change, God never changes. What a comfort. What a medicine to the sores that we experience in this life day after day and week after week. God, our God, through Jesus Christ, 
never changes. Our Lord himself declares that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Regardless of what you feel, regardless of what you experience, regardless of what you sense, this is the foundation of your faith and hope. So as you leave here today, remember God's mercies are new tomorrow. He will fulfill his promises, and he will never abandon you. This is the foundation of your faith. This is the God you trust. This is the foundation of your hope. Do you believe in your immutable God? This is the God that you wait upon to deal bountifully with you. God's unchangeable love and covenant is the foundation of your faith and hope. Secondly, God's unchangeable love is the prime example for your love to one another. This is 1 John 4, 8 through 11. Anyone, John writes, who does not love does not know God because God is love. He goes on, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Remember, God's love is not an emotion, but an action. He doesn't love because he is moved to be loving. He loves because he is God. And the call is to do the same. We may not feel like loving one another. We may not, due to circumstances, feel like acting in love, but biblical love acts in love for one another despite how we feel. Biblical love doesn't wait until it feels like loving. Biblical love is not moved to love because it feels loved by another. Biblical love acts in love from the infinite source of God's love. Biblical love means to do good to one another. It's to think good things of another and speak good things of another and do good things for another. It's to work hard at this. It gives of one's time. It gives of one's energy. It shares with one another. To love is not to be jealous of one another or to put our own preferences over the needs of another, but to go out of our way to do that which is good for another. And since this biblical love is an action, this means sometimes reproving, gently reproving one another and rebuking one another, that too is an act of love. There's sin that needs to be dealt with. There's renewed obedience that needs to be sought. And God is our example. He is love and he rebukes him whom he loves. Psalm 119, 168 says about the Lord, you are good and do good. Likewise, through Christ, then, we are to follow the Lord's example and be men and women who do good, but where? Where from? Because we are so weak from the infinite source of God's love. God's unchangeable love, then, is the prime example for our love to one another. So let us take comfort in this covenant love and peace 
a love and peace which never changes. Let us gaze then upon the beauty of our covenant head. Let us look to him. The love of God incarnate, the Prince of Peace, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who indeed is the same yesterday, today, and forever. For as English Baptist minister Edward Moe expressed, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Why? Because on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And it's sinking sand because it's changing. But trust in the Lord, though your circumstances change. Because his love for you and his covenant with you will never, ever change. Let's bow. Our Father in heaven, we confess that so often we are distracted by what we sense or what we feel or what we encounter and experience in this life. And you have given us a great high priest who does indeed sympathize with our weaknesses. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that through Christ, through faith in Christ, we are members of this covenant of peace. We thank you that we know from your holy word that you are immutable, that you are unchangeable. We ask that you would grant us faith, increase of faith and increase of hope upon this foundation of your unchangeable loving covenant for us. Through Christ, our great high priest, who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, through him we beg. Amen.